This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's no secret that it takes a long time to get hired by an intelligence agency, but Congress is now looking for details from agencies on exactly how long. Members also want a plan for improving those timelines even before they know what they are. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest. And Justin, why the IC, why Congress, why now? What's going on? Well, the Compromise Fiscal 2023 uh, NDAA released just this week includes a big section on intelligence community workforce issues. And one of those issues is a provision that would require the director of national intelligence to send lawmakers a, a report on the time it takes to onboard personnel in the intelligence community. This is a, a long running issue, but there are mounting concerns that it just takes too long to get hired into the intelligence community. And these agencies are missing out on talent who would rather not sit around and wait. And so this report would also require that our agencies come up with a plan for improving the timeliness of the onboarding process. And specifically, uh, Congress calls out this 180-day timeline, so about six months. They're saying wherever there's an agency that is exceeding that median timeline of six months for onboarding, they need to come up with a plan for improving that. All right. Well, my advice to the IC is just tell them it's, you know, 82 days and down to 75 and see if anybody reads the report. But a major factor in that onboarding is the background investigation, which they have been chipping away at for, gosh, five years now. And so is that still a factor? It is. It's a major factor in the onboarding process, perhaps the major factor. Uh, The latest uh, numbers show that the background investigation backlog is drastically reduced from where it was just a few years ago. And the time it takes to complete a background investigation for a security clearance is way down, but it still takes a long time. In the fourth quarter of fiscal 2022, it took an average of 76 days to initiate, investigate, and adjudicate a secret level clearance. And then for top secret clearances, the end-to-end process took an average of 127 days. So not quite the 180 days that's called out, at least in the averages, but there are certainly cases where it can take way longer than six months, even up to a year or longer to get that clearance. And the irony is that the renewal now with that continuous vetting process that they have instituted means that once you do get it, then it's easier to stay that way, stay vetted, and keep your security clearance. But it's just that initial ingestion and it's still problematic. That's right. It's the initial uh, vetting that's the really tough nut to crack. And as you mentioned, continuous vetting for folks who already have clearances is really ramped up under this whole Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative that we've been covering at Federal News Network. And the NDAA would also require White House leaders to submit a report on any legislative action that's required to implement Trusted Workforce 2.0 further. So you're seeing Congress kind of come out and say, hey, where, where do you need us to plug any gaps in, in legislation and law to help this along? Interesting, because it's been a couple of years since there's been a kind of celebrated breach. And there were a series of them, you know, going back a couple of years ago and several years before that. So at the same time as Congress looking at the security clearance itself, the whole process, including the length of time for the initial one, but also whether it works effectively. 
That's right. They want uh, actually the White House and the director of national intelligence to start delivering an annual progress report on personnel vetting, which is essentially the security clearance process. And those annual reports would start next September. That's according to the NDA language that we've been talking about. It should include an analysis of the timeliness costs and other factors in the personnel vetting process. So again, here you're saying lawmakers want to take a, a microscope to this whole intelligence community security clearance vetting process. And you mentioned, Justin, just a couple of minutes ago, the Trusted Workforce 2.0 reforms, including continuous. What else is going on there? They didn't stop there as part of this ongoing multi-year reform process, did they? No, they didn't. The Biden administration actually picked this up from the Trump administration and carried it forward uh, full bore. Uh, You know, the majority of the cleared population in government, as we mentioned, is now enrolled in continuous vetting. Uh, which is essentially a system that constantly monitors different sources of data and automatically flags potential issues if a clearance holder gets arrested or uh, completes a suspicious financial transaction. Uh, So continuous vetting has largely replaced the need to conduct periodic reinvestigations, uh, as we mentioned, and really streamlined that whole process, freeing up investigators to kind of focus on the front end, on the initial investigations. And the other big thing to mention here is the National Background Investigation Services IT system. That's that's really this new software that they're really going to rely on for the Trusted Workforce 2.0 reforms. That's continued to roll out this year, but it's it's big year is next year. That's when they're hoping to replace a lot of old systems with the NBIS system, as it's called. Right. Okay. And then you mentioned early at the top here, the NDAA cogitating the House just passed its version yesterday. No more maybe vaccine requirement for members of the military. But what else does the NDAA have to say about the intelligence community and workforce issues generally? Yeah, another uh, issue here is polygraph timeliness. Uh, That's yet another factor in how long it takes to bring in some people uh, or people into some intelligence positions, top secret positions that require a, a polygraph examination. So the NDAA would require actually an inspector general review of the current administration of polygraphs and whether it's meeting annual hiring requirements. Uh, there was an industry report released earlier this year says it could take up to 18 months to get through a full scope polygraph process. So again, that's another long time to wait to get into a new position in the intelligence community. And the NDA requires actually the uh, the review to look at whether there are alternatives to the polygraph. Uh, the National Center for Credibility Assessment within the intelligence community is taking a look at that right now. So there could be alternatives to doing the uh, the old meet the parents uh, polygraph examination. Wow, that would be like a hundred years of polygraphs finally buried and put at rest, wouldn't it be? I think so. Yeah. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined 
by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for 
taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, 
you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.